Well, it is a joy to listen to the sound of worship. And one of my favorite sounds of worship is the turning of the pages of the Bible. So why don't you do that right now to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. And I know you can do that by a phone or a tablet. I understand that. If you do that, though, you are left to your own devices. I want you to know that. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah, so... I don't know about you, when I use one of those things, though, I, just, I find myself tempted mightily toward email and Google, and then I find myself doing little Bible studies to off and not listening. So I try to just bring the good old Bible and use that. I encourage you to do that this morning. Well, we're coming to the close of this uh, series of messages through these summer, actually spring and summer months in 1 John. And so we're on chapter 5, the, coming to the close of this book this morning. And so if you're using a Bible provided, as Don read that this morning, it's page 1023, 1023. A couple of years ago, I heard a well-known author and teacher uh, share an event that happened in his life in uh, New York City, Manhattan. He unexpectedly was invited to uh, share with a very elite literary society uh, about his latest production, his latest book. And it, he was surprised by that. He'd never been in that kind of atmosphere but uh, he was glad to go. He went. But while he was there before that crowd and uh, their tuxedos and uh, the very, very elegant, uh, elegantly dressed, refined atmosphere, he got a case of the nerves, stage fright, and he really did not do as well as he had hoped to do. As a matter of fact, he left feeling like he was a complete failure. And so he walked as quickly as he could out of the building. He went out on the street. He hailed a cab. And he said when he got in the cab, it, it felt like the devil got in with him. The devil got like in the back seat with him. It seemed so dark back there. And his mind could almost hear the accusations of the devil. Well, you made a fool of yourself, certainly, didn't you? Wow, how you came across as some country bumpkin. These people were laughing at you. What a terrible presentation that was. And he found himself in his mind kind of agreeing with the devil. And that's not a good thing when you do that. But then he said it was like a burst of light in his heart by the Holy Spirit. It just illuminated him. And he felt like it had to illuminate the back of that cab as he began to think with God's help about who he was in Jesus Christ as a follower of the Lord, what Christ had done for him, all that he had in Christ, all that was going to be his one day in Christ. And he just got so overwhelmed as he's riding in the back of that cab, he shouted out loud, look what I've got. And it scared the cab driver to death. <laughs> he, he, the car veered over, almost had a wreck. He stopped the man grabbed his chest. He said, buddy, you almost scared me to death. I thought you had a gun or something. <laughs> and the man said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It wasn't nothing like that. I'm just talking to the devil. <laughs> <laughs> and that cab driver never took his eyes off the mirror the rest of that trip. Like, what kind of fruitcake have I gotten in my cab, you know? You know, I, I thought about that story when I read this passage this week and thought over it because it's like the Apostle John, as he wraps up this incredible letter of love and truth and our relationship and fellowship with Christ, it's like he wants us to be able just to say, look what I've got. Look what I've got. So let's think about this passage that way this morning. Look what we've got. In Christ. You know, John, just as he does in his gospel, he adds this postscript. It's a PS. 
starting at verse 13 down through the end of the chapter, just as he does in the gospel, he adds almost a postscript. And what he does here is he sort of wraps up what he's been talking about and he adds just a little bit of more information, but he brings it all together. You know, John is a a good communicator. You know, the key to communicating is just three things, really. It's just three things. Anytime you have a chance to speak publicly, it's really all you do is three things. You tell them what you're going to tell them. You tell them. And then you tell them what you told them. (laughs) That's it, okay? Just tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them and then tell them what you told them. And that's exactly what John does in this letter. If you look at the first four verses of the first chapter, he tells us what he's going to tell us. And then beginning at chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through chapter 5, verse 12, he tells us. And now verse 13 through verse 21, he's going to tell us what he told us. All right? And what he's really going to leave us with is this key word. Did you hear it as Don was reading it? The key word that he's used over and over in the epistle, what is it? It's the word no, no. The false teachers and the Gnostics had tried to steal this word from the Christians, telling them they didn't know everything they needed to know. And so John picks up their favorite word, and he says, no, we do know. He uses it six times. Look at this, verse 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 15, and if we know, verse number 18, we know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20 uses it twice. We know that we may know. I kind of get the idea John wants us to know. (laughs) How about you? Just seems that way to me. And so what's the key thought here? If we know and he wants us to know, what's the key message? It's the message of assurance. It's the message of assurance. God wants us to know who we are. He wants to know That we know who we are in him and we know all we have in him. God is not playing hide and seek with us. God wants us to have a know-so faith. He wants us to know who we are and what we have in Christ. He doesn't want us thinking there's some kind of hidden knowledge or some kind of secret knowledge that we haven't got and some special teacher some ways where has got it and got to give it to us. No, no, no. He wants us to know who we are, what we have. It's assurance. Now notice what he assures us about. First of all, verse 13 There is the assurance of our personal salvation. It starts right there. God wants us to know that we are believers, that we are Christians, that we are saved, that we are born again. Use whatever term you want from the New Testament. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now notice, it's know that you have eternal life, that you have it. That means it's a present possession. Don't be thinking that eternal life is something when you get to heaven. That's not true. That's the culmination of eternal life. Eternal life doesn't mean the quantity of life that you're going to live forever. No, friend, listen. Everybody in this room is going to live forever. Everybody in here is going to live forever. A billion years from today, you will be alive. Eternal life is knowing where you're going to be and who you're going to be with. He says this is a present possession. And it's not, though, about the quantity of life. It's the quality of life. 
You see, the quality of life we have right now, it's life in Christ. It's the joy of our salvation. It's the peace of sins forgiven. It's the fellowship of brothers and sisters. It's the encouragement of the word and prayer. It's the faithful who stand with us. It's help for us when we're weak. It's encouragement for us when we're broken down. It's all these treasures that we have. This is eternal life. It's life. It's a present possession. And it's a proven possession. He wants you to know. And so he wrote these things. What's these things? Everything in the first five chapters. He wrote these things so that we may know that we have eternal life. Now, Jared Raby, one of the pastors at our church plant, was here last week. And if you were here, didn't he did a, do a marvelous job? Just tremendous. Thank God for that. If you did not hear, you need to go and hear his message. It was just really special. But he shared with us, there's three things that John's just said over and over and over again. You think I repeat myself? I can't hold a candle to John. If, if you didn't know better, you'd think this guy was getting old and senile. He's repeating himself so much. He just says the same thing three times. How do you know that you are a believer? Number one, because you're still believing. (laughs) Verse one, everyone who is believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Christians keep on believing. They don't lose their faith. They don't lose their confidence. They keep on, by the grace of God, believing. You know, there's an old pop song from 30 years or more ago. They, they play it at some sporting events. The band will break it out or come over the loudspeakers. Don't stop believing. You ever hear that, the old Journey song? Don't stop believing. You know, I want to tell you something. If your favorite team is playing Don't Stop Believing, that's not a good sign, okay? (laughs) Just want you to know. You you can get up and boogie all you want. That's not a good sign, though, for your team, okay? But here's the message for Christians. True Christians won't stop believing. We won't stop believing. We're beaten and battered and weak, but the anchor holds. The anchor holds to the rock of ages. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that he lives. And even if he slays me, yet I will praise him. That happens because of God's grace in your heart. You keep on believing. That's how you know that you're a Christian. And you keep on loving, chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we are loving the children of God. When we are loving God, a Christian cannot help but be a loving person. Why? Because a Christian is someone that has God's spirit in his or her life. And what is God? Little children. Love is of God, for God is love. And when the God of love is in your heart, by the Holy Spirit pouring out his love in your heart, you can't keep that to yourself. You will share it. It will be seen. A Christian keeps on believing. A Christian keeps on loving. And a Christian keeps on obeying. Obeying. Verse 2 again, whoever loves God obeys his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. God's commandments are not burdensome. Someone has well said, God's commandments to a Christian are a burden like feathers are to a bird. (laughs) Feathers are what allow that bird to soar, and obedience is what allows us to really live. Really live the life that truly is life. We're not perfect. We sin. We sin every day. And John, you've seen back in chapter 1 and other places, he includes himself even at this time. He says, I'm still sinning. 
But a true believer is not going to go on practicing sin. A believer is not going to be someone whose lifestyle has been come to know as one who's known for living a lifestyle. My friends, listen. This is the victory that overcomes this old world, our faith, right? And I believe with all my heart in eternal security. I believe that those who are truly born again by the Spirit of God are kept by the power of God to salvation in that last day, as Peter says. But I want to tell you something. Someone who joined a church when they are 9 or 10 years old or a teenager, they walked an aisle, they filled out a card, they may have gotten baptized, but they've lived for the devil 40 years, has not yet come to know Jesus. That is not the testimony. That's not what Jesus died to provide. That would be a shame on Jesus Christ if he couldn't save a person better than that. And people who want to live like the world and live in the world and be of the world and then bear the name Christian, what you're doing is saying, my Savior's a pretty lousy Savior. I don't believe that for a minute. Now, we're not going to be perfect but we're going to persevere. We're going to keep on believing. We're going to keep on loving. We're going to keep on obeying. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. Let's have a Selah moment. You ever read the Psalms and it says Selah? What's that mean? Stop, pause, think, meditate. Here's what I want to ask you. Listen carefully. Does that describe you? Now, think about it before you answer it quickly. I didn't ask you about where your membership is. I didn't ask you about an experience in your life. I didn't ask you if you've been baptized, confirmed, catechized. I want to ask you, are you a person who in your life you see that you keep on believing, you keep on loving, you keep on obeying? If you do, praise God for that. That's a work of the Lord. Praise God for that. But if you don't see that in your life, if that is not a quality, the qualities of your life, then friend, right now, right now, you need to talk to Jesus. Right now, you need to call on him and say, Lord, I need to know that you're mine. I ask you, I ask you to come in my life, take my life, be my Lord and Savior and Master. Be real. I don't want this I'm not sure of religion. I don't want this phoniness. I want reality. Jesus, be real in my life. Friend, I want to tell you, Jesus is never turned away someone who has that prayer in sincerity. Right now, you believe on the Lord Jesus. You come to Christ. You will be saved. Happen right now. Right now, this moment. Assurance. Assurance of our personal salvation. Here's a second assurance we can have. The assurance of our personal intercession, John says. Personal intercession. Verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. There's the word no again. I missed that. (laughs) So it's seven times, not six times, okay? (laughs) Just got corrected in my Bible study here while I'm preaching, okay? It's all right. It happens all the time. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Notice, he says, we have confidence. The key word there, he's talking about prayer. You know what that word confidence originally meant? Listen carefully. It meant freedom of speech. This is the freedom of speech that we have toward God. What's that mean? We have the privilege of freely speaking to God. We have the privilege of access to God so that we can talk to God and he listens to us. He listens to us as if we're the only one talking to him, even though there may be a hundred million people talking to him at the same time. He listens to you and me as if we're the only one in the room. Isn't that something? He listens to us. We have access. I heard a story not long ago from the Civil War that illustrates this. There was a father of a Confederate soldier who had been terribly wounded 
but he had been taken prisoner to a Union prisoner of war camp. He was there in the hospital. One of the chaplains had gotten word to the father of the terrible, terrible condition of his son. The father couldn't get to him because of the battle lines, so he made his way to Washington, D.C., went to the White House. He stood in line all day long, hundreds of people wanting to see the president. He couldn't get in. He came back the next day, couldn't get in. They found out who he was, Confederate uh, father of a Confederate soldier. No, no, no. He couldn't get in. And he kept coming. He was standing on the stairs of the White House, and he was just had tears coming down as he thought about his son suffering in that hospital. And he looked down, and a little boy was looking at him. And the little boy said, what's the wrong, mister? What's wrong? And he says, oh, son, I got a boy a lot bigger than you, and he's terribly injured in a, in a camp, in a prison camp hospital. And the little boy took him by the hand and started walking with him up the stairs. And it was amazing. People started parting. And the little boy just kept, kept moving. He just kept following the little boy, following the little boy, people getting out of the way. And the little boy walked up to this big old oak door. He opened it and said, Pa, there's a fellow that needs to see you here real bad. That was Tad Lincoln. The son has access to the father. <laughs> and when you take the son by the hand, you have access to the throne through Jesus Christ. Now, you have access, unlimited access, anytime, any place. God's got time. Do you know God's got plenty of time? Because God's not in time. God's not limited by time because God is above time. Time doesn't constrain God. God is eternal, so he's got all the time. Unlimited access, unhindered access. If you come through Jesus Christ, it's unhindered. You don't get a busy signal. And what's it to do? We have access to what? To ask. To ask anything according to his will. We have ability to ask and to receive. We ask him, we will receive. This is, this is amazing, unlimited, unhindered. Ask and receive. Now, John says there's two things that we need to check as we Come to the Lord in prayer. Two things, okay? What are they? Number one, you need to check your alignment. Need to check your alignment. You ever do that with your car? I remember when my dad was teaching me to drive years ago up in Indiana. Uh, he, was, he was my instructor to start with. And he just got me out there in his old Chrysler going down those country roads. He figured that was safe. The worst thing I could kill was some stalks of corn or soybeans. And so he let me get behind the wheel, that big old Chrysler. It, it looked like, I'm telling you, it looked like you were looking out over a, something looked like a you know, skyscraper in width that thing down there. And I just knew, I knew there wasn't enough room on the road. But so I'm driving and he finally gives me pointers and I, I'm doing okay. And then as I get better, he says, now, son, here's something you got to do once in a while. He says, as you're pulling up a stop sign, don't take your hands all the way off the wheel. Don't do that, son. You listen to me, son? You listen. Don't do that. You just, you just kind of release them a little bit and see as you're braking if the car wants to go to the right or wants to go to the left. Because you see, son, your car can get out of alignment. And that can really, really do a number on your tires. You don't want that to happen. So you can test your alignment just by letting go a little bit. Make sure you don't pull right or pull left, okay? Now, what's that got to do with our prayer that we need to check our alignment? Let me tell you something about our prayers. We have a natural tendency in us to pull towards self, we want to pull towards self. Now, we can pray about our needs. We are supposed to. If it's important to us, it's important to him. If it concerns us, it concerns him. We're his children. But quite frankly, friends, if we're not careful, our prayer time starts to sound like someone warming up for an opera. 
starts to sound like this. Me, 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 me. Let's talk about me, 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 me. And it's just all like, what do we got? Just talking about me, 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 me. Notice that's not alignment. Alignment is on what? The will of God. If we ask according to his will. You see, prayer is a mystery. If you think about prayer, your brain will just start flipping. Because you're talking to the God who knows everything, knows what's going to happen, already knows what's going to happen, and yet he's asking you to talk about what hasn't happened yet, but he knows what's going to happen. That just kind of gets you. You know what I'm saying? You say, well, what is it then? Listen, prayer is participating with God. He gives us access to come into his presence and participate with him in his will being done. You see, prayer is not us participating so we see our will done in heaven. Prayer is us participating with God to see his will done on earth. That's what we're praying about. Thy will be done. And in prayer, as you're praying, you know what? God gives your good old spirit an alignment. He aligns you with him so that you're praying in his will and he makes your prayers part of his plan to accomplish his will. God's awesome. You know that? He's just awesome. And so we participate. That's what prayer is. Prayer is not just me talking at God. It is a participation with God. We've got to check our alignment, but what is our assignment? Look at your assignment in prayer in this passage. You've got many assignments in prayer, maybe, but notice what this one is. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Isn't that amazing? To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there's a sin that does not lead to death. Now I know where our attention goes immediately. Me too. What's the sin unto death? What, what's the sin unto death? I've always had somebody ask me, hey, okay, you going to give it to us today? Sin unto death, okay, hang on just a minute. Let's pull up just for a second, okay? Let's pull up before we get down in the interpretive weeds, all right? Let's pull up just a minute. Notice what's going on here. A Christian sees his or her brother or sister sinning. A Christian sees another Christian sinning sinning. He sees, and what does he do? He sees and he prays. He doesn't see and then publish. (laughs) He doesn't talk to others. He talks to God. He sees someone. She sees someone involved in something that is wrong and no doubt destructive in their life. And the person talks to God and asks God. The, the, the Christian intercedes. You know what the word intercede means? It means to stand between. It's when you stand up on behalf of somebody else. Or you could say you kneel down on behalf of someone else between them and God. Now that doesn't mean you have to get between God and one of his children. That's not what it means. That God's so mean and Henri, that you've got to get between him and one of his children to talk him off his temper tantrum. No, that's not what it means. It means that you plead for your brother. You intercede. You, you take his place, her place, and you plead on his or her behalf. That's what intercessory prayer is. And I want to ask you, friend, Don't you thank God there's been some people intercede for you? Right. Thank God there have been people who 
have interceded for us. And if people have interceded for you, then go thou and do likewise. Who are you interceding for? Who do you see that their life's a mess? A wreck. And maybe they did ask for it. Maybe they walked into it with their eyes wide open. Anybody else in here ever do that? Pray. Pray for them. God will hear. He will give him life. What an incredible promise here. God will hear prayer made for sinners so that they might be delivered. He will hear. He will give life. Now, here's the one qualifier. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, what does this refer to? What is this sin that does not lead to death? And there are, there's sin that leads to death. What, what is this? Well, in my humble but very accurate opinion, <laughs> I'll, I will tell you with great certainty, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. But there are two keys here, I think, that are very important to help us see this. There's two keys. Number one, notice, it's to think about what does John mean when he says, you see a brother, a brother. Because brother can mean either a professing Christian, somebody who professes Christ. Whether they are a Christian, you don't know, only God knows. Or they could be a Christian who is a possessing Christian. They truly are. What they profess, profess, they possess. They know the Lord. The Lord knows them. Again, we can't be certain, but God knows who is his. But now notice this. Brother, whether he's just a professor or he's a possessor, the other thing is to notice is sins. It's plural. You, if you see a brother committing sins, Okay, sins that do not lead to death. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is, a, there is sin that does not lead to death. Notice it doesn't say there's a sin that leads unto death. It's not talking about a particular sin. What is the sin that leads to death? No, it seems very clear here. This is a pattern of sin. This is a pattern of sinning. And clearly here, there is, there's indicated very clearly, there's a crossing of the line. The, the sin that leads to death, the sins that lead to death, sin that leads to death is a crossing of the line. For a true brother or sister in Jesus Christ who truly possesses Christ, this could mean here physical death. God says, enough, done, judgment on this one. This one I judge. He will not, she will not, my child will not stop this. Judgment comes. And the Bible teaches about that. You read in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira who were judged with death. You read in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says to the church of Corinth, there are some people in your church who have died because they've not respected the time of the Lord's Supper. They've desecrated the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are dead. They died as a result. This happens. Now, if the brother here means a professing brother, someone who professes faith in Christ, doesn't really know Christ, though, again, we can't be certain of this. It means here spiritual destruction. It means this person has no hope. God has removed his spirit. God has set them apart for judgment. There's now no hope. God deals with them no more. They have become what the theologians call reprobate. They are dead to all feeling of remorse. They're given over by God. What a dreadful thought. But again here, friends, let's pull up. Let's pull up. Notice the big picture. 
What is the call? The call is to pray. Pray. It's a privilege. Pray for people who've gone astray. Pray for those astray. Pray for them. Don't stop praying for them. God will hear and answer. Keep praying. And there's also warning here. Friend, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Sin is serious. The great evangelist Billy Sunday said one of our problems is we treat sin as Christians like a cream puff rather than a rattlesnake. Sin is serious. The passage here is all about assurance, though. We have access to God. We are intercessors. Let's pray. We have the assurance of intercession. We have the assurance of salvation. Look at verse 18. Here's a third assurance. We have the assurance of personal liberation. Personal liberation. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God, who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. Here is the assurance of our liberation. We've been liberated. Liberated. Let me mention about President Lincoln again. I, as I said, we were in Washington, D.C. three weekends ago. Um, saw some wonderful things. One thing we saw, if you're up there, the Museum of the Bible. I want to tell you. Amazing, amazing. I encourage you to go see that. Truly a blessing. But also we had time to make another trip. I've been there several times to our National Archives. Just wonderful to go in, see that old faded copy of the Declaration of Independence. See if you can make out the old John Hancock, you know. And then to see the Constitution of the United States. Wonderful to see that. And now they were displaying the Emancipation Proclamation. So I got over there, I got real close because I wanted to see Abraham Lincoln's signature. And the reason I wanted to see it was because I wanted to see if it was nice and firm because Lincoln signed that on New Year's Eve 1862, it went into effect on January 1st, 1863. For hours before, there in the White House, they'd had an, a, re, a holiday reception. He had shaken hands with thousands and thousands of people. And so when it had opportunity, he had opportunity to finally sign the, uh, sign the proclamation, the Emancipation Proclamation, he picked up the, the quill and he started to sign it. And then he put it back down. His hand was so stiff and sore from shaking all those hands. He said, if I ever fix my name to an important document, it'll be this one. I don't want it to look shaky. And so he got the cramp out of his hands. He picked the pen up and he signed his name. You know, I was checking it out. It was just as clear as it could be. Straight across there. The Emancipation Proclamation. One thing, though, about the Emancipation Proclamation, you know it really didn't free any slaves in actuality. It said that they are free, but it was going to take the shedding of a lot of blood to free those slaves. It, it changed the course of the war. It changed the purpose, in a way, of the war. But for those slaves to be free in those states, it was going to take shedding of blood. And my friend, I want to tell you, there's someone who has shed his blood. And he is the great emancipator. His name is Jesus Christ. And if he sets you free, guess what? You're free indeed. Not just a name, not just words on a page. You really are free. You're truly free with true liberty. You have liberty over the practice of sin. Verse 18, we know everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. You're not perfect, but there's been a change of power in your life so that you are practicing following the Lord. 
You're, you don't, you're no longer a, a slave to sin. You're a servant of Jesus Christ. There's liberation through the protection of the Savior. Did you notice this? Verse 18. He who was born of God protects him. The him is the Christian. He who was born of God is Jesus himself, the only begotten of the Father. The one who is God incarnate is protecting his people and the evil one is not able to touch him. You know, I was reading this week one commentary on 1 John by a man by the name of D. Edmund Hebert. D. Edmund Hebert. He's now with the Lord for many years. He's a great interpreter of the Bible. Usually pretty dry, though. Pretty dry. But I tell you, I think D. Edmund must have got blessed as he was reading this. Because here's what his quote was in his commentary. Listen to this. Quote, Satan will assail the believer, but his slimy fingers will never regain an abiding grip on a redeemed soul. And I want to say, you go, D. Edmund. Man, that's great. That, that, that professor, he preached himself happy, and I'm doing it this morning as well. I don't know if I'm helping you or not, okay? You see, a Christian has God on his side against the devil. The devil's not afraid of you. He's not afraid of you, but he's terrified of your big brother, and he's scared of your daddy. And if you're a Christian, God is your father. Jesus is your elder brother. You're okay. Devil is not going to snatch you away from those two almighty and powerful hands of the Father, the Son, and the seal of the Holy Spirit. A Christian has God on his side against the devil. But friend, this is also true. Listen up. A Christian is on God's side against the world. A Christian is on God's side against the world. And that's what verse 19 says. We know we are from God. We're on God's side. He put us there. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There is a line of demarcation. We are from God. We're on his side. And then the whole world, the whole world system, it doesn't mean the people of the world or it doesn't mean the planet. It means the world's values, morals, every philosophy of this world, all that this world is about lies in the power of the evil one. You see that word lies there? You might want to mark it in your Bible. You know what it means? It means to recline. It's like a couple when the woman reclines back on her beloved and he puts his arms around her. That's what this word means. Think about it. The world is in the embrace of Satan. The world is in the embrace of Satan. The world's in a love affair with the devil. And we as Christians are beloved of the Father and we love him. And we're on God's side against the world. Friends, listen, you got to choose sides. You got to let your side be known by your words and by your deeds. We need to be making sure that no one questions whose side we're on, right? You don't have to be hateful. You don't have to be mean. But people should know by the ways of your life and the words of your lips that you are on God's side. And it doesn't matter if 200, 300 million people say a sinful thing. We're still against it if God's against it. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And it's determined by God Almighty through his book. 
And it's not up for popular opinion or poll. And we're called to stand with God. From the system of Satan. Selah moment as we're closing. Whose side you on? Whose side you on? You know, I found out a long time ago playing football in high school. Most dangerous thing you can do is stand around. <laughs> you better be tackling or blocking somebody. And they need to have the other color jersey on. But you just stand around, it's not going to be good. We need to decide whose side we're on. We have the assurance of our personal salvation, our personal intercession, personal liberation. And then I just give you these five words about the assurance of a personal revelation. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He, he is the true God and eternal life. Now, if you mark in the margin of your Bible, you might want to mark next to verse 20. Just mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, because that's just exactly how... John started this letter. He's come full circle. What did he do? He told us what he's going to tell us. And now he's told us, and now what he's doing? He's telling us what he told us. And this is exactly what he says. He says, this is the essence. Friends, listen up right now. This is the essence of everything this old man John had on his heart. It's the essence of what the Christian faith is about. It needs to be the anchor of your very existence on this planet. And if it is, you will do well. And here is what his theme is. God has revealed himself in his son. Who is the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth. That is the revelation. God has come to this earth. He's come on a rescue operation. He has accomplished eternal salvation for all who believe. God Almighty Eternal has revealed himself in his one and only Son. And his Son is the Messiah of Israel. He is Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord. That is the essence. That is the anchor. That is the revelation that guides us. It's incarnational. He is come. Here's the five words. Number one, incarnational. He is come. That's, <laughs> he is and he still is. He's, he's come. It's done. There's B.C. and there's what? A.D. He's come. It's individual. He's given us understanding. He's given us enlightenment. You don't need a special, special teacher who's figured things out nobody's known for thousands of years and you get to know them now and he's the only one or she's the only one who can tell you. That is absolutely not true. God, through his spirit and his word, will enlighten your heart and you know what? You will have answers, answers for life. Friends, don't be ashamed to tell people, listen, I've got some answers for you. They're not my answers. They're God's answers. But we're not left without answers. Shame on us if people talk to us and they walk away scratching their heads saying, I wonder what that guy's all about. No, we've got answers. Why do we have answers? Because we've had the indisputable revelation. The indisputable revelation is Jesus Christ. We may know him. He is true. There is only one truth, and the truth is Jesus. What was Pilate? God bless Pilate, that blind Roman man. He said, what did he ask? What is truth? He said, what is truth? 
and truth was standing before him in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, right? We have the answer. We have the answer. It's not my answer. It's not your answer. Friends, listen. Point people to Jesus. Just keep pointing them to Jesus. He'll straighten everything out. He's on the job 24-7. Just point them to Jesus. It's an inseparable revelation. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. Think, Think of this divine affirmation. He is the true God. He is the true God and eternal life. Friends, you know why he says, keep yourselves from idols? That's his last warning. You know why? Number one, they didn't need to be going around those pagan temples because it was, it was a haunt of demonic spirits. But you know why people went to the pagan temples? Why did they go there? They went there and prayed and gave and pleaded and sacrificed, hoping that God would enter them that they would have God come into their being. They were wanting what they called enthusiasmos. Enthusiasmos. We get our word enthusiasm. What's it mean literally? God in you. They wanted to be God-possessed. God-possessed. Friends, When you come to Jesus Christ and you trust him as Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and he is real and you become for the rest of your being and all eternity a God-possessed person. God-possessed. The devil doesn't possess you. God possesses you. You're possessed by God. The world says, we've got better ways. We've got things that'll make you happy. Oh, keep yourselves from idols, John says. What is an idol? An idol is anything that's more important to you than God. An idol is anything that you're devoted to more than God. If you're more devoted to money than you are to God, then money is an idol. If you're more devoted to your job than you are to God, then your jobs become an idol. If you're more devoted to your family, then you are first and foremost devoted to Jesus Christ. You've got to be careful that those beloved children don't become an idol. A church can become an idol because you're all about the church. But what about the God of the church? If you're not careful, even Satan so slick, the Bible becomes an idol. Because you want to study the Bible, but next thing you know, you don't know the author. The book was written so you could know the author of the book. Keep yourselves from idols. 